With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Episode 50 of District of Conservation. As always, we thank Real Camel Girl for sponsoring this series. Today's episode is very special. I am so excited to bring on Ken Parat, who is a award-winning outdoor writer and photographer and Air Force veteran. If you live here in Virginia, you may be familiar with his Fredericksburg Freelance Star outdoor columns that appear regularly. He's been writing for them since 1997. Ken also happens to serve as the conservation field editor for National Wild Turkey Federation's Turkey Country magazine, a post he started in early 2015. He also is the South Atlantic Migration Alert editor for Ducks Unlimited's magazine that comes out to members regularly. And he has previously published Wild Game Recipes for Virginia Wildlife magazine. To date, he's published over 2,000 outdoor-related articles that have appeared in dozens of publications, including many of the aforementioned ones, but also in Outdoor Life and USA Today's Hunt and Fish magazine, just to name a few. He's also a member of the Professional Outdoor Media Association, POMA, Southeastern Outdoors Press Association, SIOPA, and AGLO, which is the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers. And he is involved in various different roles there. Ken has a really unique background, and I'm going to let you read more about it on your own. But the Cliff Notes version of his really illustrious career is something I wanted to lay out for you to get to know him more if you're unfamiliar prefacing this interview. I mentioned in several podcast episodes ago back in the fall, so it's probably a while now, uh, that Ken took me muzzleloader deer hunting where I had a clean miss and I kind of reflected on that experience, and he actually talked about it in a column in the Freelance Star back last fall. So it was really interesting to do that, and I met him when I went to Siopa's fall conference in 2017 and got to know him there and connect with him since he's not too far from me. And he has been very helpful with trying to get me into whitetail hunting more and has really been a, a constant source of good advice and I look to him for a lot of uh, interesting inspiration, and I think you will too, especially if you're a budding outdoor communicator. You love Virginia's various different types of hunting or fishing, or you want to kind of live vicariously through someone like Ken who travels not only the country but across the globe to go hunting and live out the outdoor communicator's lifestyle that many people aspire to live out. Without further ado, here is my interview with Ken Parat. Thank you for joining District of Conservation, Ken. Appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of things professionally over the years, worn a lot of hats. Uh, but in the end, I hope some people are going to say, yeah, he was a military veteran, uh, but he was also an outdoors writer. So that's been a big part of my life, connecting and sharing the outdoors experiences and issues with people. And uh, I'm happy to talk to you today. Absolutely. Yes, you have quite a illustrious history. You have decades of experience in the outdoor industry. And I wanted you to come on and talk about that because you have mentored me a little bit with hunting and 
so many others um, with all the outdoor rider associations you're involved in and other communication endeavors. And I think uh, even people outside of Virginia will find your wisdom to be very pertinent to, to things they do even in their states as well. So I want you to share a little bit about how you got into the outdoors. Uh, was it something you've done since you were younger? How did you get uh, into fishing and hunting and shooting sports? It, it, it does date back to my early childhood. I grew up in northern Vermont and uh, a little town north of Burlington. And my grandfather, Walter, used to take me on fishing trips down to the Minuski River and out on Lake Champlain quite a bit. And uh, certainly mentored me and, and hunting with my friends and my uncle from the time I was about, I don't know, 10 to 12. Uh, I still found a lot of time to fish after I, I left uh, to join the Air Force. Hunting got a little more challenging time-wise. Uh, I was going to school part-time and doing a lot of other things. But, uh, you know, and when I was little, I, I thought I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But once I got my glasses in the third grade, that kind of did that. And so then I, then I thought, well, maybe I want to be a charter fishing captain. Um yeah, uh, I, I think the the seed for the outdoors for me was planted by my experiences with my relatives and friends. And then I'd also, you know, when you're a little kid in a small town, you go to the barber shop. And I remember going to Jarvis's barber shop, and I look at the photos and read the articles and in the dog-eared magazines laying there on the table. You know, while my dad and brother were there, and uh, I'd go home and night and once a week I'd watch the American Sportsman TV show and you, you something you'd always dream about being able to just go on trips like that not even wondering if I could ever write about them or be published in some of those magazines so yeah the outdoors has been a big part of my life since I was a little kid I, I grew up playing in the woods and building tree houses and flipping over rocks and catching salamanders and taking out my 22 and going out chasing squirrels and rabbits and stuff that sounds like it has played a large part in your career and your life, and it should if you're working in the industry. I, I fully believe that. And uh, since you have the love of all these various different activities, was it a natural uh, progression to work in the industry as an outdoor writer and communicator? Explain your steps uh, into that industry and how you got your footing in it. Sure, sure. You know, as I mentioned, I joined the military, and uh, after – I was fortunate because uh, I was able to get into the public affairs career field, which is largely communications, public information, so on. And uh, my first jobs were centered on the internal information side, which is largely the base newspapers. And I edited four base newspapers. And somewhere along that path, I, I kept going back to you know wanting to do outdoor stuff. And so I'd, I'd first write a couple outdoor pieces for the military papers I was editing, you know, whether it be going deer hunting when I was on leave or teaching uh, novices how to about ice fishing in Colorado where we cut holes in ponds and try to fish for trout and stuff like that. Uh, really by the early mid 1990s, I, I had only had a couple paid published pieces, including some in Virginia wildlife, some others in whitetail times, but I think it all really took off for me. Uh, when uh, I was working at 40 P Hill in Virginia and uh, I've always been a, a history buff, and, and I wrote a history piece for the Fredericksburg Freelance Star newspaper. And it was they have a, they used to have a Saturday magazine called Town and County. And Gwen Wolf was the editor, and she she got it. She really liked it, and asked me to do some more work for her. And 
The more we talked, she realized that I had a, a strong passion for the outdoors and had actually done some outdoor work for magazines. And so her husband, Lee, was the sports editor, and she suggested to Lee that I might be a good fit uh, as the paper's outdoors writer. So it was kind of you know, serendipity there, uh, really uh, a lot of luck coinciding with hard work. And so, um, you know, once I started doing that, it, that was like almost 23 years ago now, still doing that gig, which I'm really blessed and happy to say, but uh, I started trying to branch out even more as much as my day job would let me and uh, send out more freelance queries to magazines around the country, both big and small, and placed a couple magazine articles in smaller regional publications. I got several thanks, but no thanks notes from the bigger magazines. But uh, one thing I found heartening is that some of the editors were really uh, charitable with their comments and their suggestions related to the, the story ideas that I was pitching. And so uh, I didn't give up. I kept going and eventually, you know, things started falling into place. Really encouraging to hear. Yeah. Especially with the industry changing so much. And I would say even um, daily newspaper circulation, you probably noticed that a lot of uh, daily newspapers across yeah. the country are disappearing. And I, I think um, much like religion columns, I have, Notice that, um, bearing few exceptions, of course, a lot of outdoor columns are not uh, being circulated as much. And you have, I think, one of the longest sustaining columns out there. So what are your thoughts on um, daily newspapers kind of um, shedding these outdoor columns? Do you think it coincides with the overall decline of newspapers? And do you see it possibly reversing this trend? Uh, what are your observations on that? Well, uh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely hate it. I a lot of people that I've come to know as friends uh, either lost their jobs or retired earlier if they had that opportunity to do so. Uh, one th one thing about I need to point out about my work with the, the Fredericksburg Freelance Star, it's unique, is that I was never a full-time employee. You know, I was an Army employee, and this was just a part-time thing I did. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd put in a couple hours on weeknights and usually work, spend about one full weekend day working doing my freelance outdoor stuff. And... The, the work that we I did was uh, both myself and my predecessor. We were contract employees getting paid by the article. And as as I look at the papers around the country that have retained some kind of outdoors writing presence, it seems like a lot of them have been going to that model. They don't have the full time outdoors editor anymore. There's not the big outdoors page, that, but they will have a, a column or two once a week, and they go to that model. But, what was also funny uh, when I started working for the Freelance Star, and I still chuckle about it when I think of it, because I, you know, I knew I'd never make a living at it, just because it was basically piecework. And uh, but so, so many of my readers who'd see my my outdoor column used to run on Fridays, now it runs on Thursdays. They thought I was a full timer, and they thought the newspaper was paying for all these hunting and fishing trips. And you know, I had the time. I not not hardly. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm, I pretty much have to broker all these own experiences. And but you know, one one thing I learned though is you, sometimes you got to make investment in yourself, especially in that kind of line of work. And you and you and you got to put the bill for going on these trips and getting these experiences, and then translating them into something that people want to read about or hear about. And then one, once you branch that out, and you can start marketing to other magazines or other publications, the, the more you do it, the more the opportunities come. And I, I really 
also learn that you can't apply a total cost benefit model to each story that you write. Um, you know, some stories cost much more to you in terms of your own expense investment than what you're ever going to get in terms of payment in exchange for publication. But the key is, I think you get, you have to get those stories out there to readers or viewers. And, uh, there's a lot of intangible benefits that accrue once you start uh, getting you know, yourself published. When you asked about uh, the overall decline of papers, and when, I, I think I would go back to what I see to, because I experienced it is what the big game changer was, and that was the Internet. You know, um, at, at first when the Internet was uh, getting more commonplace and easily accessible and, you know, better with graphics and everything else. There, there were a few, if any, strictly online publications, but just about every established publication that I knew of and wrote for was really eager to get an Internet presence. And, and this is when it started getting tougher for outdoor writers because when, when, when you used to write for, for publications, you sold articles and something that was called First North American Serial Rights. And stop me if I'm getting too basic with this. For no, no, this is enlightening. You, I'm learning a lot. Yeah, you, you sold, it was First North American Serial Rights. And what that meant is that whatever publication bought the story or the photos had the first rights to publish it. And once once they did and ran it and stuff, then you were kind of free to do it, you know, rewrite the lead, rewrite the bridge, do about a 20, 30% content rewrite. And then you could remarket that story and, so, and often even some of the photos, and get it published in other areas and extending the dollar value to you. The publications really didn't care because back then there was no Internet. And, and, and once it appeared in the newspaper or magazine, you know, a month or two later, just so much fish wrapper, except for you know, those great barbershops and places where they lived on for sometimes years on the table fueling our young imaginations. But then once, once the um, these publication companies started getting their own internet presence and lawyers started coming up with new contractual agreements. And instead of buying first North American serial rights, what they almost all the contracts we got presented back starting in the late nineties, early two thousands were now you was a work for hire, which granted the publication, all print and electronic rights forever. And so there was no more really remarketing your stuff. I mean, once once you gave them those words and stuff, it was theirs to do with whatever they wanted. They didn't have to put your name on it, really. And so it was tough. <laughs> not, and and not, not only that, instead of paying more for basically signing away your rights forever, the payment rates started to slip compared to what they were. Um, I, I know a lot of publications that, uh, or writers who told publications when they got presented with these kind of agreements, you know, thanks, but stuff it, you know, I'm going to shop it around elsewhere. But it, it, that was tough for them, and a lot of them didn't get their work placed. I, I know that for a fact. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it can be tough because uh, a lot of times too, the, the payment is on uh, publication and not acceptance. So with the publication cycle, sometimes you will invest time and resources in putting together an article. And it might be a, a year before you get any return on it. So it's kind of tough.
um, the uh, in terms of the overall trends in the market, boy, both newspa- newspapers are smaller. We all see that. Uh, most newspapers are trying to get online electronic publications. Many magazines that used to publish monthly are down to quarterly, and we're talking about iconic brands here, you know, outdoor life and field and stream. And this all cuts into the available market for a lot of people who want to become outdoor writers. Uh, then there's a lot of online publications that are, that are pervasive out there, uh, and but they don't pay very much, you know, probably about enough to get you a decent dinner with a bottle of wine in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's, uh, you, you, sometimes you feel like you got to be a bit of a masochist to work as an outdoors communicator, but, uh, I, I, I do worry, I do worry about, um, some of the trends because it, it is lowering the dollar amounts that people, uh, are able to earn and bring down the revenues of all who might want to make a living in the future, but it's not, it's not all bad. I mean, there, there is opportunity. Uh, we, we had, we had some sessions. Uh, well, let me, let me go back to the internet and, and stop me if I'm talking too much. You have a question. Yeah, proceed. Um, proceed, of course. You know, the, the, the internet, I think, has given people, readers, expectation that things should be free. And plus, the internet is a bit of the Wild West, and, and there's a lot of thievery on it. Uh, a lot of my copyrighted articles have been stolen, basically, by people who've been copy and paste them on the various websites, often without my name on it, but they're just basically stealing content. And today, you know, anybody with a smartphone's potential photojournalist, reporter, social commentator, uh, but that doesn't make them a journalist, really. Uh, I don't see a lot of standards for fact-checking, accuracy. I don't know how you overcome that. Uh, and I don't think newspapers and magazines have cracked that code yet either, but they're trying. It's a, it's a definitely a real challenge. We, we um, I belong to a lot of outdoor writers associations, and um, we used to have a lot of sessions and seminars about the, the changing markets and how the pay was changing and stuff. And, um, there was one long time, usually outspoken writer. I won't mention his name, but good guy. He, he said something at one of those meetings that many of us in the new room knew was true. And that's the, the key to make a living as an outdoors writer is to have a spouse or significant other with a good job and benefits. <laughs> uh, you know, I was fortunate. I already had a stable primary career path and income benefits retirement plan, but People trying to break in, and I'm talking about, you know, the last 15 years or so, are having a tougher path, at least in terms of making a living. But to be sure that there's there's some people who are, you know, still the full-time masthead contributors on magazines and 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 some print people who've managed to switch themselves from print to successful YouTube personalities or, you know, develop uh, shows on outdoor television that have a strong following, but um, they're, they're not. Uh, quite that commonplace, I would say. Um, I, I don't, I don't know what you do to reverse that trend. <laughs> the print is morphing into electronic. With you know, a lot of publications, I think trying to figure out how they can quit doing a print edition. 
in just going to digital newspapers and magazines. I think probably that's a generational thing. There's still um, the, the baby boomer generation and beyond that um, do like to have that piece of print product in their hands that they can take with them and do stuff. And they're not, they don't necessarily like to read things on their phone. So the, the key though, as these publications go to digitals is how do you get people to pay for electronic content? Because if a publication perceives and represents itself as a quality publication, quality content, isn't or at least shouldn't be free. Yet, you know, objective, well-written content produced by experienced professionals should be worth something. So I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to make that model pay. It's a tough nut to crack, no doubt. Yeah, there are a lot of unique challenges. And I think a lot of people who are interested in becoming outdoor communicators uh, are noticing some roadblocks um, and feel like there are obstacles. I luckily haven't been one of them. I mean, there's always challenges to wanting to be an outdoor communicator, and I make a living doing communications at large, um, not simply by outdoor writing, but you certainly um, painted a, a realistic picture as to what the industry is. And I know there are probably several budding young outdoor communicators out there hearing someone like you who's more seasoned and experienced and has obviously sustained his career through these changing mediums, um, the shift to digital, things of that sort. What advice would you have for those who are interested in potentially doing this, not necessarily uh, as a full-time career, but maybe as a hobby that could lead to a full-time career? What associations would you recommend that they join? And do you think uh, this future generation could sustain outdoor writing um, from what you see right now? Yeah. Well, from what I know of your background, I, I know you try to operate in a diverse environment. You know, I, I don't think uh, you can make a living pretty much with very few exceptions as a one-trick pony in the outdoors communication world. Uh, you have to be able to do, do multiple different uh, things. You have, to, you have to operate in in a multimedia environment, and uh, you have to really understand who your audiences are. Um, I... I I belong to several outdoor communications associations. I, I know a lot of professional communicators don't, or, or if they do, they don't attend. But I've personally found value in them over the years. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You, you do find kindred souls and mentors. And, and I think that newcomers to those associations generally find that the people who are in them and experienced are usually friendly and giving of their advice and time. And, uh, eventually, uh, back in the, in the nineties, I, I did get enough credits. A lot of them are, are criteria based on which you have to have so many published magazine articles or newspaper articles or photos or whatever, or, you know, a book a year. So there's some kind of criteria based. And I was able to get enough credits and a sponsor. And I got myself a membership into the outdoor writers association of, of America and, and, I, I knew that that was important in terms of advancing any kind of outdoors communication career opportunities I had because I knew the people that were going to be making the decisions about what ran where were often at those meetings, and, and I wanted to be a part of it. So um, what I remember I still – it's very vivid to me. Um, when my first membership directory arrived, I turned the page, and I – 
know, and you look and you see your name on that page and, and your, your little background stuff, and I smiled. And then I, I looked through the rest of the directory, and I, I turned to the, the page with the G section, and there my eyes were staring at the name Kurt Gowdy. Now, I don't know if you know who Kurt Gowdy is or was, but he was the American sportsman. And uh, for, he, that was the original big outdoor television show. For every kid who loved the outdoors, the American sportsman was most viewing. There wasn't a bigger show. And now my name was in the same directory as Kurt Gowdy. So it was a powerful moment. Uh, so I began taking advantage of all they had a, ODWA used to do something really cool. It was, it was kind of like speed dating between uh, editors and writers where they would sponsor an afternoon or a morning and writers from all of the various outdoor publications would, or excuse me, editors would, would be there or assistant editors and they'd have a table. And what you did is you could rotate around the tables and have like 15 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever, to talk to these editors, get to know them, pitch your stories, leave them a piece of paper, a business card, and so on. And, you know, so, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, but you were networking, you were getting to meet people. Um, and I think that was really helpful. Uh, again, the more the more you do, the more you network, I think the more work you're going to receive. And uh, beyond OWAA, which, which I no longer belong to, by the way, fortunately, but uh, the other ones I'm most familiar with are the Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers, the Southeastern Outdoor Press Association, the Professional Outdoor Media Association, and uh, two of those are state, one's national. There's also a lot of, uh, you know, state and regionals, like the Florida Outdoor Writers Association, I think is a good example of a vibrant state association. And, and one thing about membership in these groups is that it's, usually pretty inexpensive and also conference attendance is generally very affordable. And I've been a board member now, uh, and an officer in a couple of these associations. And we, we talk about conference planning and membership services and people are always trying to figure out how to increase member value. Like the professional outdoor media association, for example, has a, a really great regular newsletter. Uh, I think it comes out at least once a week. And then every day, they um, send a listing to members that usually have three or four job, you know, either full-time job or uh, publications that are looking for, for some kind of assignment or type of work that an outdoors communicator can possibly tap into. So that's a great service. Um, and again, many of them are criteria based, but you have, you have to have done something to get in. But uh, a lot of these organizations are now revising their, criteria to account for the changing world to uh, people who are considered social media influencers or bloggers yeah. or whatever in an, in an outdoors type uh, environment are often eligible for membership. So, and there's also categories for students and others who are interested in careers in outdoor communication. So that's, that's one good path. I think, you know, if, if you can get involved there, you're not going to meet everybody, but you're going to meet, some people, and the, m the more people you can meet, the more you can get published. Uh, the, the easier it's going to get as you as you go forward. Um, and then, what do you feel about like the current crop of young outdoor communicators um, that are starting to come out? Are they um, fashioning themselves kind of like others, 
a more veteran type communicators. Obviously, what you had mentioned, the social media influences and others, and they're kind of becoming more multimedia, not so much your traditional print or uh, online columnist type um, individual yeah. there. But what do, you, what do you feel about the, the upcoming generation? And do you feel confident <laughs> that they can take the mantle and continue I, the work that uh, people like yourself and others have uh, laid the groundwork for? I, I see a, a lot of... Uh... A lot of young folks who have come into the industry, and um, I don't want to mention them by name because I know I'll leave somebody out, but they're, they're already making a profound mark and, and doing great work and are dedicated to their craft. And uh, I, I think our, our illustrative that, you know, the future's in pretty good hands. Uh, then, then, then there's others though that I, I think think that there there are shortcuts, and 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 maybe this is the old school part of me because you know uh, I came up in, in the print world and where where I, I see a lot of writers who don't really learn the basics. Um, if if you if you read consume a lot of stuff around the internet and stuff in the outdoors, you, you find that uh, I like I like the publications that illustrate a basic grounding in the English language and an understanding of something called the Associated Press Style Guide. And I used to characterize it as uh, you see a big difference between writers who fish and fishermen who write. And, and you see a lot of that in all these publications and um, I've, I've been an editor for a long time, and I often see fellow editors groaning on social media about some of the obvious flaws and some of the work that's being handed in. So to any newcomer or even a professional, it, even the most experienced editor needs an editor when, when you do a piece of work. Uh, but for everybody, you know, learn the crafts, what the details, I mean, the basics, accuracy, brevity, clarity, uh, and, you know, de- depending on some sites you're on, and we used to joke about it in some of our meetings, it's like some, some people thought a great article was the one that strung together the most product placements that they could, you know, within the first three paragraphs. And, I, I again, this is me personally, I, but I think the best pieces are the one that capture the outdoor experience, the, the human feeling, the connection of a person or group to the natural world. Those have always been my favorites. Those have been my favorite to write. Um, sometimes you write purely technical pieces and you need a clear review on some kind of new tool for people in the outdoors. But I guess I always preferred the experiential versus over the technical. Maybe it's because I sucked at math as a kid. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know I, and, and another thing, I, and I don't want this to delve into pet peeves, but, um, you know, if, if you read a lot of the, stuff over the years it seems to be an overemphasis on extreme that you know something has to be extreme in order to be interesting and, and to me i think there's great value in just sitting out there on a pond or a river and, and just watching a bobber go down and that's not an extreme experience but you know it there's intrinsic uh i think value for your soul in that kind of outdoors experience so the, the there's there's plenty of articles out there that people could be doing that aren't extreme. You don't have to uh, 
be engaged in something that can potentially kill you for to be interesting to readers. So that's a bit of a pet peeve. Um, back to other opportunities, though, for young communicators. Let's see. Um, one, one thing one, one thing I've noticed is um, with, with the decline of newspapers and a, a lot of even state agencies, uh, there, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, controlling or at least managing exposure to the messages, whether it's coming from an agency or a brand. If, if you look at many of your biggest outdoor brands, even some of the emerging or small brands, they now have their own websites, their own blog sites. And these are all sites that require content, and yeah, they're going to, you know, make sure that it's best foot forward in terms of whatever their products are or their brand represents. But there's opportunity there, I think, for uh, people to provide content for those sites. Um, they, they almost all have editors. Just find out who those editors are, reach out, and see how you might be able to contribute. And uh, I think there's also a lot of potential for people to write for conservation-affiliated magazines uh, or, or working, you know, on the PR side in their, their information offices. Um, so, again, like you're doing with your own career, I think there's a lot of potential out there. You just need to be diverse and need to be able to wear more than one hat. I'm sorry yeah. if I believe you that. But no, that's really good and very even-ended because people have to be faced with the reality that you're not going to have a one-size-fits-all approach. And given the changing landscape of how things are communicated, it would be impractical to just focus on print or one thing. And, no, you laid out perfectly what I think uh, my fellow millennials should do to ensure that they could potentially succeed in this industry. I want to shift a little bit to, obviously, it's related to millennials and reaching adult onset hunters, but throughout your writing, and I like that you actually focus more so on the experiential type things, um, and I think people are more captivated by that. They don't want to just be thrown technical things, uh, but you have documented a lot at the Freelance Star. You, you travel and you've taken younger hunters. You took me for my first muzzleloader experience. You've taken many people across the years um, who are new to hunting out there, and what do you think are the challenges uh, to recruiting, retaining, and reactivating hunters or getting um, adult unfit hunters? And what do you think the industry is doing right uh, currently um, to help mitigate those problems? Yeah, I, I think that's a tough one. And there, there's a lot of organizations and great minds trying to solve that one because uh, sustaining the base of hunters is critical to conservation because unless the model really changes, uh, you know, hunters pay, pay the freight for wildlife conservation in this country. Um, it, you, you mentioned, you know, you're a millennial and, and one, one thing I, I am hearing and seeing some research is that, uh, millennials, at least a component of millennials do uh, value that experiential, uh, challenge associated with the outdoors and are willing to, uh, invest time in learning. So I, I think that's a great thing. Uh, I, one of the big challenges I think is going to be increasingly the, the population in this country is getting bigger and access is getting tougher. Uh, I, I agree with something that the farmland trust stated years ago. I used to preach to people that farmland lost is farmland lost forever. 
and that, you know, you, you look at developments going up and they'll talk about, oh, well, we're, we're going to have open space. We're going to have, you know, some riparian buffers and a, and a green space here. But really, that's just a place where your poops can poop, you know, without it's not it's not a place where, you know, deer and wild critters are going to, you know, run unfettered. So, um, you know, I, I guess maybe I'm longing for bygone times, but I, I liked it back when the, the old farms had overgrown hedgerows that were full of rabbits. And now, you know, there's a lot of clean corporate farming that leaves a lot different landscape. So uh, we, we need to really look at the access issue. We, we need to uh, look at making sure that there's land that's available for people to actually get out and, and do things on and that they, they are closer to the urban centers. Virginia uh, is doing some some good work right now in terms of strategically prioritizing where they're going to invest their money in terms of purchasing wildlife management areas. They've just bought several thousand acres uh, along the I-95 corridor, which is very congested from a human standpoint. And it used to be, you know, well, we're, we're going to try to get the most bang for the buck and get the most acreage for the dollar, which often meant buying a mountaintop out in the western part of the state. But that was right next to the 1.7 or whatever it is, million acre, you know, Jefferson, Washington National Forest. So there was already a lot of open space out there that was accessible, but in, in the areas where people were, were living and uh, commuting, there, there wasn't necessarily a lot of places to go without driving a long way. So they're doing a good thing there in terms of trying to address the, the access issues. One one thing I do wish they would look at is um, the, the Sunday hunting provision, and this would take the uh, Virginia General Assembly to act, but the wildlife management, right now you can hunt on private land in Virginia on a Sunday, but you can't hunt on public land, including wildlife management areas that are bought with hunter dollars. So uh, I, I see that as a big R3, you know, that recruit, retain, reactivate new uh, old hunters and stuff. Uh, I see that as a big R3 failure because when, when you look at people's schedules now, especially kids, uh, they're, they're so jammed up time-wise and the the week is, is full of activities and usually at least one day on the weekend is full of activities. There's athletics, there's need to study, there's family trips and stuff and to to be able to, to shut down the opportunity on a wildlife management area for one of those two weekend days really takes away uh, 50% of the opportunity for these youngsters or novices to get out there and enjoy the outdoors and, and the spaces that were purchased with hunter money. So I, I really wish people would put pressure on the Virginia General Assembly to, to remedy that because I think it's a big wrong and a big failure in terms of R3. Um, I, I, I think hunters need to, to, along that end, hunters need to take a political interest in what's going on. To, for too often, uh, I think they were an unrecognized force. You know, they, they need to take interest in legislation such as the Farm Bill and other pieces in that national legislation or state legislation that have provisions for conservation programs and habitat preservation and so on. Um, I think the outdoors industry, and I've written about this before, and needs to reach out to parents, and, and, and including parents who are 
part of their core constituency or their core audience because the parents are the ones who are going to say how much their kids get to go outdoors. You know, I, I mentioned earlier when I was a kid, we'd be outdoors until dark or even later, you know, playing in the woods, the swamps, catching the salamanders. You know, my parents never worried. I mean, I, as I got older, I played sports and I had more schedules and stuff. But but even when I was a, an elementary schooler, I'd be out there till after dark and my parents never worried unless I was really too late for dinner. And I think parents need to facilitate getting their kids outdoors. But and the authors have written about this. There's a pervasive worry among some parents about how dangerous the world is now for kids, mm-hmm. that the kids always have to be monitored and kept in sight and jammed up with activities and so on. And, and, and just go to any kind of event. And it's not only kids, but adults now. They're consumed with electronics. And I'm guilty of it. You know, get your nose buried in a smartphone. I don't know how I have resisted in a tree stand without a smartphone. But <laughs> the smartphone has been uh, the downfall of me missing a, a couple good deer in Turkey over the years where I was looking at my uh, smartphone screen instead of paying attention to what was going on in the woods. But I, I think that's that's a problem, and I don't know how, how to address that. You know, I've heard that some kids don't even want to go on hunts unless they have Wi-Fi. Or, or can get, you know, get their phone working out there. So it's tough. Um, for, for for the last 20 years, uh, many people haven't seemed willing to invest the time in activities that are, are required for expanding your learning and skill development in the outdoor setting. That's what fishing and hunting requires. You should have a, a knowledge base. I think you do. It is important on developing outdoor skills. Uh, a lot of hunters pride themselves on their outdoor skills and the detailed knowledge of the the game that they're pursuing of the the fish they're trying to catch. Um, I, I do see a lot of programs out there and, you know, they're they're designed to get kids or novices quickly experienced. Uh, and, and a lot of times there's an emphasis on trying to get the kids quickly successful because I think there's some thought that unless they're successful, that they won't stick with it. But, you know, I recall back in the day where, I mean, it was nothing for me to go on two or three solid weeks without getting a deer. I might hunt a week without even seeing a deer. I just knew that if I had built my outdoor skills enough and worked hard enough, and I had a chance at getting a deer. It was never going to be a guaranteed thing. So I do see some maybe too many spoon feeding programs and and I I wish there was as many um, squirrel hunter associations as there were deer hunter associations because I I do think there's merit in uh, mentoring offices and working them from the small up to the large. In fact, that's, that's on my mind because that's, that's the topic that I've written for my uh, outdoor column in the freelance star next week about um, how we've kind of gotten away from getting kids out to, to do the basics and everybody's starting out big with deer and turkey and so on. So, but it, it, it for, for kids, it's going to take parents being willing to uh, let their children get out there and experience the outdoors and perhaps not worry so much about uh, bad things happening to them in the outdoors. Uh, I'm, I know Rural people uh, probably don't don't have that issue. Kids that grow up in, in rural environments still 
outdoors and have to do the outdoor chores and things. But I'm, I'm talking more of the suburban, urban yeah. uh, folks who, who ha- might have a bit more of a challenge there uh, and, and reluctance. And uh, for for the for the novices, that uh, they need to have mentors that they can kind of hitch their wagon to and give them access to places. And a lot of people who have good places are, are have a tendency to kind of say, well, this is my place, you know, and, and judiciously guard it. But I, I think in order to uh, sustain and uh, recruit, we, we need to open up some of our places and let uh, the newcomers also share what we enjoy. That that is really true, especially with um, a lot of the challenges we have on the East Coast in terms of uh, more private land versus public land. And yeah, you spelled out I think exactly what can be done. Um, and there's no one size fits all approach to how to address this. But I'd say you're one of the few people who who understands and is quite forward thinking on it. You've laid out a lot of very interesting things, especially advice and, and pearls of wisdom. Where can uh, my listeners connect with you and your writings and, and follow what you're up to. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, well, a, a couple of years ago, I started a, a website. It's uh, www.outdoors. That's outdoors with an S rambler.com. And the site's kind of like a, a bit of a clearinghouse for a lot of my work. And plus it's a place where I can pop things up there that I, I don't necessarily have space for, uh, or can't get on to my column or some of the other things I do. Uh, started doing some YouTube videos and so on. And then I've got a, a Facebook page, the Outdoors Rambler with Ken Perrot. And then, of course, um, the uh, www.fredericksburg.com. That's the website of Fredericksburg Freelance Star. And uh, pretty much all, all the content of the newspapers on there. And we encourage people to get subscriptions and support the local newspapers because they're very important. But, yeah, but, uh, I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some Absolutely. of these. Absolutely. You know, yeah, you, you've been very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. again this, this fall. Yes, let's, let's plan on it. I would love to go again and not have a cleanness. I'll be better this time, I promise. <laughs> I'm yeah, so yeah. nervous. Practice, practice, practice. I've been trying to. I went uh, yeah. hog hunting recently, and I wasn't familiar with polar night vision, and I had another cleanness, but I was – a little bit better and more measured uh, than, than mm-hmm. when we went muzzleloader hunting. But no, you you are a repository of information. Um, I met you first time at a CIOPA conference several years back in, I think it was fall of 2017. And it's, it's good that someone like you is really close by. And, and I encourage listeners to find people like you, mentors, who are in their uh, urban setting, because D.C. metro area is quite urban, not as bad as like New York City or Los Angeles, but we are quite heavily urban suburban. And people like you can certainly take young um, aspiring hunters, people like myself and others who are even far more green and, and not familiar with the outdoor lifestyle hunting. So it's, yeah, I, I hope more people will take your lead, um, more seasoned folks take your lead and, and, and take more adult onset hunters and new people hunting. Um, it's really important, especially in our increasingly technological age. <laughs> right. yeah, I'll be sure to link, yeah, I'll be sure to link everything um, you've mentioned in the show notes so people can find anything you've mentioned, especially the writing stuff you alluded to and just all your, yeah, your, your blog is really wonderful. I like getting the updates whenever you send those out. Oh, thank you. I I don't, I don't do it frequently enough. It's like, (laughs) like everything else, uh, 
that the activities seem to swell up to fill the available time. But, uh, you know, we try. <laughs> and, you, know, you know, I'm not trying to really – I know some of what I said might sound negative. I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on the, the future of outdoor communications. I think there's a lot there. A lot of folks are just wrestling with how this is going to evolve. And uh, importantly for people who, who want to have a career in it, how, how do you make money and make a living at it? That's – those are the challenges. It can be done, but it's it's going to take some hard work and um, I think really thinking it through and, and following how things change. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's um, it's challenging to navigate it, but it's not impossible. Yeah, and you mm-hmm. you've perfectly stated what people I think should do, and uh, everyone has a different approach. But I think you've laid the guidelines for how to be successful and to be more humble. Because I know that um, a lot of people, and I've I've always been kind of this way. I'm, I'm a lot more humble. And I try to listen and be patient and try to understand around me uh, what goes on. And I, I hope more young people exude that same patience and humble quality, um, just because it is important uh, when you're trying to enter a new industry or an unfamiliar industry and kind of learn the inner workings of it. So I hope, yeah, more of them kind of learn that uh, from people like yourself as well. Okay. Well, great. All right, Tim. Thank you for coming on the podcast. All right, Gabrielle. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're welcome. Talk later. Looking to sage advice from people like Ken is very important if you want to be an outdoor communicator. And that was my hope with today's episode. And I hope you found it to be informative and compelling, especially if you are a budding outdoor communicator, writer, opinion maker, and want to learn from the best. And he is one of arguably one of the best out there for sure. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, download past episodes, and leave us a review. All these things will help us reach more people and help us reach higher rankings on the wilderness charts there. And you can also listen to us on platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. You can find participating platforms at anchor.fm slash district dash of dash conservation all there make sure you find us on facebook instagram and twitter to see who we bring on in the future the topics that we discuss and so much more have a great week and stay tuned for upcoming episodes we're going to have another phenomenal guest during next week's episode so stay tuned for that tell your friends share the good word